Hello and welcome to episode 27 of the Replatform podcast. It's uh, with me, James Gurd. I'm joined as always by my co-host, uh, Paul Rogers. How are you doing, mate? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. What, what fun stuff have you been up to this week? Uh, not too much. We had a client launch, um, which has been um, interesting and um, yeah, like quite good. Um, and then, yeah, just same old really. Just been pretty busy with projects and um, yeah, the odd run. But, yeah, what about you? I love the word interesting. That that hides a million emotions. I won't probe you on it. Um, yeah, I'm just, so I'm I'm in the midst of a, a big replatforming for Magento one to two, and um, the usual um, fun and chaos that comes with uh, with the projects as they get towards the end date. So that's all good though. It's good to be busy given uh, the uh, what's going on at the moment. Um, so yeah, so we've got a, a, a fun topic to discuss today, which uh, you suggested to me a couple of weeks back, and I think it's a great one. It's important UX considerations when replatforming. So we've both been through numerous replatforming projects, and they've got the scars um, from that. And the key point we're coming from today, um, if I can frame this correctly, is that in in a replatform project, there are just thousands, thousands of decisions get made, and the devil really is in the detail. And e-commerce teams need to think about what happens when users are going to be let loose on a system, not just what looks nice and might work in a design phase and having that UX critical thinking applied on top of like brand decisions, design decisions, e-commerce decisions can make a massive difference between creating a site that might look good and a site that's actually fundamentally usable. Um, I I guess, uh, does that frame it Paul in the right way in terms of what we're going to talk about? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think um, you know we've got some really interesting topics, and it's, it's yeah, it's just kind of where um, changes should be made. Kind of yeah, the different factors, kind of different um, influences. Yeah, if that makes sense. Fantastic. So we're going to just plough through and just kind of um, uh, riff around uh, things that we've learned, things that have bitten us in other projects, stuff that, uh, that people should take seriously when planning out their projects. So let's start with um, who should represent user experience uh, or customer experience through the design phase? Yeah, so um, so I've put some notes here and I think um, overall, I guess it depends on the project and kind of who you've got in a project team and the type of agencies you're working with and everything else. But I guess um, for me, it's kind of quite a broad, like UX is quite broad for our average project where kind of everyone's inputting um, and you've essentially got kind of input from an e- from your e-com team, probably like any consultants that are kind of representing e-com or UX or any other parts, um, potentially a UX agency or the design agency, however you're kind of structuring that. And then the kind of maybe solutions and design um, teams from the development agency as well. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think from my, my experience in this is, is e-commerce teams should have in their team, even if they're working with external parties like you're saying, which is often the, the right way of doing it because not everyone has a high, a high level uh, UX person in house, but you have to have an internal UX lead because somebody has to make the final decision and also provide oversight so that if somebody in the e-commerce team is trying to push forward something that's going to you know, screw up the user experience on mobile, it isn't best practice or creates an accessibility issue, that you have that like filter between the the the, uh, the the project and the UX people to make that decision. So there's a massive difference between knowing what good practices for e-commerce and understanding how to make that accessible and usable across devices, different breakpoints, different use cases, etc. Yeah, I think um, the thing with multiple influences as well. So I guess like it is just like a pretty open area, isn't it? Really, but I think the other thing that I've kind of seen is like 
so I was working on a project recently and there's kind of a design UX lead um, who's really good and had like a really positive influence on the designs and actually she ended up kind of taking over and um, yeah definitely like really helped the project uh, but she didn't really understand how the platform worked and how the different third parties work so yeah. that's the only other influence I think that's usually quite important it's like um, thinking about kind of what's native and what would require kind of um, unnecessary customization and yeah yes yeah it's a very good point so in terms of um of informing ux decisions what research should be done to help uh, in ux planning and how can that help a business uh, make changes or prioritize what it's going to do so let's start with the research because i think that then leads in a bit uh, nice and logically into how how do you then start to make decisions around prioritization yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I guess, um, yeah, project, like, again, it kind of differs a little bit, but it and depends what you have available to you. So um, like GA is always a good place to start or analytics, web analytics is always a good place to start. Um, and again, that kind of depends what you have available to you in terms of kind of how it's set up. So um, if it's like... And if the data is accurate and reliable. Exactly, yeah. So um, like in an ideal world, I guess, and again, dependent on the scope of the project and how much you're changing, like being able to look at things like the usage of navigation, the usage of kind of filtering, things like that, and search and whatever else, um, I think is often a good place to start, just kind of like quantifying where you are at the moment and then maybe trying to get an idea of kind of how that should look. Um, and then also any kind of other sources of data you have so i know you mentioned earlier when we were talking um kind of looking at things like um, session recordings um and kind of heat maps and things like that uh, which i think makes perfect sense and then any kind of um feedback you've had from your current site as well and something that i've started doing a little bit recently is trying to put like strategic uh feedback requests um on an existing site so basically if you get like a week's worth of uh feedback going into that project so for example asking about the checkout um on the order confirmation page for like specific users or um certain triggers for like asking about kind of the pdp i think that can bring in some really useful feedback um and then the other obvious things are kind of looking at um competitor sites and other kind of sites that have kind of best practice in very specific areas and i think that's something that um i would say is like you often you can just look at competitor sites and they might all not be brilliant um, or they might be, they might look good overall um, and they might have like a kind of, you know, best practice for your uh, kind of vertical. But I think often if you kind of look at other players um, and maybe other kind of market leaders and maybe the pure play businesses and things like that, um, often you'll kind of see, uh, you'll find more ideas and you'll find kind of other ways to kind of make different areas more usable and more effective. Yeah, definitely. I, I've been going through this recently with a jewellery client on a um, on like a make your own jewellery configurator and looking at how competitors do it and and everyone has a different approach and putting yourself in the in the mindset of a customer going through it, you start to see all the user journey flaws and where decision making gets slowed down because it's really complex to work out what you've got to do next. And even if even without a a kind of um, a UX architect doing that piece of work you can put yourself in the mindset of the customer and work out how you could simplify journey flows. And that, often that's the biggest UX battle on e-commerce is simplifying things and not trying to make stuff unnecessarily complicated. Coming back to your earlier point about make the use of things that work out of the box um, yeah. when they're proven. Yeah, I think one other thing that can be quite useful as well, and this is, um, I guess it can be quite niche and it's probably more relevant to platforms like Shopify, 
um, but in the past, like when I've been going through UX phases and um, kind of just looking at not necessarily competitors or market leaders, but people that have done things really nicely with the platform or the third party. So I always use like, I guess, mate.com as an example of a Clavier implementation that we've spoken about before. Um, and then with Shopify, like Outdoor Voices, for example, have like a really nice um, kind of um, kit builder slash um, kind of like implementation of bundles. Um, that's really nice and like there's loads of other examples of that kind of stuff but I think that can be quite a good thing to have as yep. well going into that yeah definitely as many external reference points as possible which illustrate what's good that you could borrow and adapt and what's bad that you need to avoid yeah definitely and that's why the research bit's critical right and it's it, you can jump straight into doing solution design stuff and then you you just don't have enough reference points to to make smart UX decisions exactly um, so what, what we wanted to now talk about, which um, I think is the, the, uh, the juicy part of this uh, episode, is some of the areas from a user experience point of view that are often overlooked, common issues that creep into projects that lead to the compromises in that end user experience. So um, do you want to start with um, some of the ones that, things that have frustrated you as a user or stuff that you've seen in projects that you've had to unpick? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I think uh, there's a few here that I've got that I find uh, really annoying to start off with. So there's like obvious ones. Um, but then there's kind of some that I think that I've seen a lot more recently. So one is um, the rendering of pages um, and kind of how kind of content is rendered and the order of which kind of of how the page is rendered as well. And I think that's something that is really often overlooked and can really make the difference between like a good experience and a bad experience. So essentially, and also kind of thinking about how that can be more of a premium experience through like um, kind of things like uh, load states and all of that kind of stuff and loading pages um, and different kind of interactions. I think that's um, something that can be not too much work, but can make a really big difference around UX. Um, and then also kind of pop-ups and kind of conflicting pop-ups so when like you first land on a home page for example and then you get the cookie policy the cookie bar you get kind of like um an email a data capture pop-up um and kind of any other pop-ups that um you might have and i think that and also like an international overlay things like that i think that needs to be really considered and you need to prioritize and kind of think about the ux on that side oh god yeah i had one recently i can't remember the name of the site but they had the newsletter sign-up overlay, but it was one of the ones where it went full bleed across the screen, mm -hmm. um, which sometimes can be done, like it can be visually quite compelling, but um, they obviously haven't optimised it properly and I couldn't yeah. find the X button, so I couldn't close the bloody thing because I couldn't click away from it because it covered the whole screen and I was just sat there in this interminable hell. I was like, right, I'm leaving the site. And I think that's a really good example. Actually, like I have a, I had a client that did that. So like they find that essentially the data um, around, like they get more emails basically with that. But I, you, you need to really think about how you test something like that as well, because you might get more emails, which might look like it's performing well. But I think things like that, that clearly kind of like disrupt a user journey, um, definitely need to be properly tested. Um, I think um, the other thing there that you reminded me, I've completely forgotten what I was, where I was going with this, but you reminded me of something then that, was, that I find really annoying. Um, I think another one that's, uh, oh, actually, yeah, that was it. So you said about the close button. I think that's a really important thing. Like any kind of, 
JavaScript overlays, um, pop-ups, anything like that, you need to think about how to make it easy for someone to close it. So I've seen quite a few examples recently on like particularly mobile and tablet, where it's really hard to close things like size guide pop-ups, um, search overlays, all of that kind of stuff. And I think that's the kind of thing where, um, yeah, you just need to think about that in the design phase as well, really. And, um, yeah. and I said about tablet there, and I think a lot of people design for mobile and desktop. Um, and then they don't think about different breakpoints and kind of how things could become uh, inaccessible. And also, um, yeah, just a really poor UX until you get into UAT, basically, and you start testing different devices. Um, so I think that's another one for me. And then there's various other ones here. I'll let you talk about things like some of the other ones, James. I think the ones you've just said actually about the, the, the how it feels to be interrupted in your journey. Like, mm -hmm. does, it, does it then come across as an annoyance and a genuine interruption or does it come as like a useful bit of information? And, and language is also really important. It, it, it's been popular for a while and I've seen fewer in the last few months at least from in, in, on US sites where it's like, you know, here's an offer pop up. And then instead of no thank you or close, it's what you don't want to take advantage of this. Yeah, you I don't want to be one of you don't want to be one of yeah. the winners. And it's just that really culturally there are different perspectives on it. In the UK, that becomes one of those, oh, you're so patronized. So you have to be really careful when you're doing it about yeah. how that plays out in different territories as well. Or you might just really piss people off. Yeah, absolutely. There's um, the other one that like I would put in the same bracket as that is that spin wheel that a lot of people seem yeah. to use. Um, and again, like, I've heard people say that it really works, um, but yeah, I feel like that's the other one that really frustrates me and like the wording that's usually associated with that. Yes, and again, it come back to the point you said earlier, is that it's very easy for us to sit here and say, well, we've had experiences where this is bad and doesn't work, but fundamentally there's different experiences, different sites, so you have to test, you know, I think the key thing is when you don't have an existing pattern that you have data for to know how it impacts your site and your metrics and your customers, don't chuck it in without testing. Um, yeah. Unless it's something where the customers have in number have said, we want it, we want it, put it in. Um, you have to be very careful. But no, I think, I think your list is good. I think a couple of the other ones we, we talked about is, um, um, so something at checkout was on your list as well about not deviating from standard unless you have a, a valid reason to, because there's a reason why there are standardized patterns in a checkout because they just work. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, one thing, and this is slightly off topic, I find that it's quite interesting. So we've both talked about search quite a lot in this um, uh, kind of when we've been leading up to this episode. And I think with search, from my perspective and from your perspective, in a lot of cases, uh, more people using search means uh, hopefully more kind of revenue and kind of an incremental uplift. Um, one like, and the, I was thinking about this when I was writing some notes. Is so like we've got a client that's um, in the kind of luxury space, and search performs really well for them. Um, and from my perspective, I'd want to like expose it across all devices and get more people going through search. Um, and I think that would make sense from a numbers perspective. But um, the kind of business um, owner and like the U and the people that are kind of the brand team essentially um, hate search because uh, they have less control over how products are positioned together from kind of a merchandising perspective and I think that's quite an interesting one is like how you balance like input from those kind of stakeholders with like best practice in UX and um, yeah I don't know if you've had any experiences like that. Yeah I have and I think there's two things so number one is trying to get I guess it depends on the volume it's a high volume side and fundamentally a machine learning tool will make a better decision than a human yeah. being will at scale. It's just, it's that simple. 
if somebody is trying to manually create every single search results page, they all fail against the machine. However, you have big campaigns during the year where you want to merchandise in a specific way to align with your campaign objectives. That then becomes the point of saying, right, the technology makes the decision for you because it's learning from a user behavior point of view, conversion rate, click-through rate, all of that stuff. You can feed returns data into it so you can make smarter decisions for what to prioritize. But when you have big campaigns and you have a specific push, like you might have done a deal with a particular brand you're selling where you prioritize their new range, then you override that with with um, custom business logic within your tool. So for, for me, it's a really simple discussion is, is don't try and outdo what a machine is way better placed to do. But when you need to, because you have a specific campaign, then use the tooling to, to give you that extra control or, you know, insert banners. So you, you can, do this with with um, on any search results page and if you, whatever tool you're using you could create a banner space on that search results page where you can do your marketing campaign messaging without screwing up a machine learning algorithm that's better at optimizing products for sell-through rate yeah i think it's it's about kind of compromise really isn't it and i think in this this is also quite an extreme example um where there were like certain products that they would only want to show for like maybe one or two keywords which like from a kind of business logic or merchandise perspective would be like it would require so much manual work to kind of create that logic um and there's yeah but i think like you're always going to have some scenarios like that and i guess it comes down to like again having all those different people and influences in the room um and just kind of factoring that in yeah exactly and also important to know that uh, from a user experience point of view you've got to put data behind this to know that whether what you're doing as a merchandiser is actually benefiting the customer because if what you're doing is ticking your brand box again brilliant we've merchandised how we want yeah. to, but the customer is not buying and they're abandoning their search or they're refining search or they're jumping into other journeys and fundamentally you've screwed your ux so it's you know the, exactly it's a balanced decision um a couple of other things i think yeah, you're going to talk about speed and performance a bit but a couple of other things i found just little quirks uh, of ux oversight so one is store locator yeah i've gone through a brand recently where the default expectation is right okay we do location detection you can enter a postcode or use where you are now and we'll list stores that are closest to you which is great when there are loads of stores but if you're a, 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 a company that only works with uh, only has stores and in one specific area or you've only got three or four stores nationwide it then becomes meaningless because I enter my postcode and your store's 200 miles yeah. away. It's like, well, brilliant. I've wasted my time. You just list the stores and show where they are. And you just have a bigger expanded map view to show the, the, the geographic dispersion. Uh, I've seen that work far, far better. Then in the future, as you expand your store list, you can then revert to a standard locator lookup. Um, that's one little quirk. Another one is pin navigation. One of my pet hates on this is, Pin navigation um, can work really well because it speeds up um, access to, to like key functions, but it's got to be contextually relevant to the page. I see site-wide ones where, for example, I go into a PDP and I scroll down and I've got a site-wide header with just like all the top category in my account and stuff. But actually, the most useful thing that can help me on a PDP when I'm as a user scrolling down is quick add to basket button and quick links to the different types of content on that page. So if I suddenly think, oh, I want to go back and read the reviews now, I don't have to scroll all the way back to the top, click on the reviews thing and get back to it. Um, it's, it's simple changes to existing patterns that can make a difference. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that um, kind of pin the sticky navigation one is, um, is an interesting one as well that uh, when people like I've seen people go down that route and they're not 
kind of think about it enough in terms of different devices and kind of the the one that I'm referring to mostly is the PDP um, sticky add to bag. Um, and I've seen yeah. that kind of have a lot of issues with kind of different mobile devices where people are like, it's, it's a really good idea and it's a good practice. Um, but it just, they just haven't really like implemented it correctly. Um, and another one of like another thing that's really, that really annoys me that I've seen a lot is um, the zoom on input fields on, um, I think it might just be iPhones or just iOS. Um, but where you're kind of, when you start typing, then the keyboard appears and then it zooms in slightly. Um, and then that's something that basically just needs to be, um, kind of factored in um, as well. I'm not through the UX phase but it, pr it creates a really poor UX because then once you've finished typing if you then don't press search for example and move on to another page where you'd be zoomed out you're zoomed in and it creates like a really poor kind of experience and the user has to then figure out that they need to zoom back out yes yeah all the little things that slow you down and wind you up and you go why have you made it so difficult for me that, yeah. that pinned bar one is a really good point because um I've seen this in designs where people come up with a really nice pinned footer on, on PDP because it stays near the bottom where the thumb is, and that's great. However, I mean, that suits iOS really nicely, but on Android, most of the, um, the navigational buttons, as far as I remember, are at the bottom of the screen. So then if you create a pinned yeah. footer, you've got the mispress issue where they might, they might go to press it and they press one of the um, device buttons rather than the, the pin button. So it's all sorts of little nuances. And this is where having a UX expert makes a difference because they can advise and say, okay, great, but that doesn't work on here. So do we need to have a, a, an, a, an, a, an adaptive version for this specific device or do we redo the overall treatment so it works unanimously across devices? Yeah. Um, the other thing with that is how it works with things like the cookie policy on mobile. Yeah. I've seen that have um, issues in the past. I've seen issues around that in the past. Yes, where basically you can't see any content on the page because there's about four different things <laughs> covering it or it's yeah. or two different elements are covering over each other. Or yeah. it covers the uh, add to cart. Yeah. Um, so I'm just going to mix our, our flow up a bit because yeah. we talk about search. So let's jump onto the search bit because we've all talked about it on loads of e-com chats. Uh, many people have despaired over the lamentable state of site search on so many sites. Um, it blows my mind that so many sites get some of the basics wrong and, and we're not just talking smaller websites with maybe smaller teams or not the, 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 the leading tech, but even big brands. Um, it's a key journey, we know it. For most sites, search converts more than non-search sessions through other navigation journeys. What, what, is, what are the UX tips that you've picked up over the years? What do people need to watch out for? What can they do to make it better? Yeah, so I think um, usually there's quite a bit, or like for an average retailer where they haven't really optimized the search function before, it's usually quite a good uh, opportunity. In, uh, and also if they're using kind of a native, I guess there's different levels. So if you're using kind of a native e-com platform search function, it's probably not going to be very good. So um, I'm yet to find, the only one that I've actually seen that have really kind of created like a decent feature set for search is work area, but I don't, I've never actually used it. And I think... Um, I guess I think it's really hard for an e-com platform to maintain um, a kind of best-in-class search function um, and also kind of, yeah, have all of the kind of associated integrations and everything alongside it. Um, so, yeah, so I think implementing a third party can be a good start. Um, generally, all of the third parties will support things like JavaScript overlays, uh, which can help to speed up the process significantly and kind of broaden the results you're providing via kind of um, uh, predictive search experience. 
Um, and I think also mobile is usually a really big opportunity for that. So just kind of rather than kind of going through category pages. And I think I did some research once um, on like 10 sites ages ago when I was doing something with Clover. And um, it was something like four and a half minutes was uh, the average route to find an average product on over these sites. Um, if you're going through the category, um, if you're going through categories um, and then search was kind of 25 seconds basically um, and I think that was to get into the cart um, but yeah I think that's a that's a really good kind of um, that's had really positive results in the past um, and I guess the other one is just if people are converting much better when or if the users that are completing a search are converting faster and um, the conversion rates are higher um, just trying to push the search bar so things like placeholder text being more enticing uh, making it really prominent um, I've had really good results from uh, basically trying to make search the primary user journey um, on mobile uh, so that's that's something that is worth evaluating and obviously it's going to differ dependent on the type of retail you are and if you've got more of a complex catalog I think that generally makes a lot more sense um, and you'll get a lot more value out of it um, and then I think beyond that kind of um, yeah making sure your results page is kind of consistent with the rest of the site sometimes uh, dependent on platform and technology you're using uh, you'll find that kind of templates aren't as nicely styled or like the filtering's different or yeah. the product cards aren't as well optimized things like that um, and then just kind of yeah error handling um, yeah kind of the like the merchandising side, if you can, I guess things like personalization within search can, can be quite valuable. Um, so kind of upweighting products dynamically based on how the products people are kind of interacting with across the site. Um, yeah, all of that kind of stuff, really. All quite standard stuff. What about you? Is there anything that you should want to add to that? No, it's good. There's two things I'll pull out, actually. So the one you talked about, about just trying to to emphasize the search and get more people to engage with. So there's, I saw some really nice data for Conversion Excel um, a year ago. They did a, a huge amount of, because they're a CRO specialist, they did loads yeah. of testing across lots of clients. And they tested all sorts of stuff. But the thing they found that had the biggest impact in terms of, uh, of um, usage and revenue was simply by changing the design um, style and layout of the search box to make it more prominent, to get more people to use yeah. it in the first place. So they, they things like making it go across the width of the screen, um, changing the border, making it um, a deeper box, yeah, putting text in the box as well. They even tested animated text, so the text like wrote in a, um, uh, as you were um, loading the screen, yeah. you saw it typing in to try and make you think that you should then do. So just really smart testing on, on even basic search engagement. I, and this is the thing that so few sites do this actually. They launch with a search and they either have spyglass or an expanded state and that's it. And, it, and that's how it stays. Yeah. They, they, will, they will play with the technology, they'll test algorithms and ranking stuff, but they won't try and drive engagement through testing the visual design, which is odd. Yeah. Um, and the second that I've seen from a UX um, annoyance is, is when designs are being signed off a search results page, for example, is looking at the patterns and working out what happens in education. So I saw one recently on a client where it was a really lovely design with a, um, when the search results came in, the query was centralized in parentheses and to the left was, was the word filter. So you could open the filters and to the right was the word sort. So you could change the sort order. It looked lovely. And these slide in patterns for filter and sort were really good as well. The problem was the uh, design was based on a uh, six letter query, 
when you suddenly look at the fact that about 10, 10 to 15% of the searches were 20 characters plus, and you whack that in, given the font sizes there and there was no plan to make it change, it completely blew out the structure and just and destroyed the um, the design and made it just look really, really odd and staggered. So it's, it's thinking through the level of detail that says, okay, you know, we've got a lovely design. Now, if we drop in the reality, what happens? Does it still work or do we need to rethink this? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that makes sense. I think one thing you just said there, uh, and I think it's the same um, as what I'm thinking. So around the kind of, so to kind of draw attention to search, uh, the kind of animation around entering the query. Um, so I saw um, quite a nice example the other day. So homage.com, so H-O-M-A-G-E. Um, they basically, so I think like in, within placeholder text, if you can kind of, if you've got a really good search function and kind of encourage people to be more detailed so that they go directly to a product set without having to refine, I think can be a really good experience. Um, and they've, they, they basically have some animation where they rotate the uh, last bit of the placeholder text. So it's like search for your favorite team and then it's got country, club, and like uh, they basically like factor in like content results within that and I think that works quite nicely and I hadn't really seen that done before and I thought that was quite good. Yeah I'm just looking at it as we speak yeah that is nice. Um, oh do you know well that's led me to one other thing from a UX point of view which is drop down menus and I, I really love the visual uh, display of their search drop down when you, when you first go in there you start searching you get this popular searches trending collections product yeah. but the thing that's that I find interesting is when the drop down area doesn't have a clear visual uh, differentiation from the background of the site below so it's literally that's on yeah. the right background you can't tell the difference so actually it now looks like that's just part of the site there's no like drop shadow or whatever it might be yeah absolutely emphasize it and there's things like there's a site called Ramoa, which is a luggage site that does that really nicely just with a real simple stroke just yeah. to make it very clear where it so sometimes it's real subtle design changes that make the ux yeah. Oh uh, yeah, but nice example of that. It types in and shows Sexy City team. Yeah, that's nice. The um, that site you were just saying about then, um, I don't know how to pronounce it. Remote, I think you said. I was looking at that the other day. It's actually a really nice site. I was, there's a number of things on that that I really like. I can't remember what they were, but yeah, I remember thinking it was really nicely done. Yeah, there's nice things like subtle transitions when you do mouse over on the list page where the image you're, or um, the product you're looking at, although you get a change image, it expands the tile, so it yeah. pulls your eye. Gucci does that really nicely. Actually, Gucci's got a very cool pattern on PLP for, for um, when you do mouse overs. Um, cool, so uh, we talked a bit about search, and now, we're, now we talked a little, we just kind of like nudged into PLP. So let's talk about a couple of things related to PLP, which really important for e-commerce and UX. So let's talk about filters first. I know you've got quite a few uh, comments on this because you've done a lot of work over the years. So what about filtering? Yeah. Filters be optimised? Yeah. What, what, what UX um, insights can we give? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the first one and the biggest one for me is product attribution and thinking about the filters that people actually want to use. Um, so I'm doing like one of the projects that I'm working on at the moment. They have really basic filtering and um, they're basically, they think about it as if uh, everyone's on like a really deep category for some reason, whereas actually a lot of their more generic um, categories, like you basically just have like a product set of like up to 500 products 
um, with only size and material filters. So there's no kind of style. So it's a fashion retail. So there's no style, category, um, fit, etc. Um, and I think you know, Burberry is quite a good example of like a relatively similar retailer that do it quite nicely in terms of their filtering um, options. Um, but I think that's a really easy opportunity quite often when you first start working on a project or if you're replatforming. Um, so in this project, we're using it as like, it's a, basically, it's quite a, a stripped back project it's a lift and shift and um, we were trying to add some kind of like um, improvements or like minor optimizations as part of the scope just to kind of keep everyone uh, kind of motivated and also just to kind of justify it I guess and um, uh, to certain people within the business and this is one of them and actually this is one of the ones that I think will have the biggest improvement but I think that's one um, in terms of kind of filter uh, UX around filtering, I guess, on mobile, kind of making sure that um, you kind of make it very clean and uh, usable. I always use ASOS as an, a good example. So I think they were like one of the original ones that created like the little uh, kind of refine overlay. Um, and then they allow you to make all of your selections and then you press refine or whatever the button text is. Um, but I think that's quite a nice way of doing mobile. It's much cleaner. You can save quite a lot of time um, rather than having to apply filters, wait for the products to then load or, or apply at each filter level. Yeah. Um, on desktop, I think merchandise or like kind of really thinking about the order of filter options is quite important as well. And that's something I've been doing a bit of recently with another client um, where basically we're, we're looking at different things. So across different types of users, like what one what filters are going to use so the standard order of the filtering but then also the actual options and then we're basically we've added events to all of the options and we're trying to pinpoint which ones um result in less further refinements and uh, also convert the best um and i think that's quite a good project to do as well because oh, definitely that's a really cool one I, I did that a while back with um with selfridges where they were having problems on list pages and the first thing was to look at what, what filters do people use and what values within each and how we reorder because they were finding on some categories like handbags, for example, new in brands was the key driver, yet yeah. the filter by brand was so buried down the page that most people didn't even know it was there. Um, yeah. So yeah, sometimes it's uh, the data can be an absolute godsend for UXs to make decisions like that in hierarchy. And one of the things that we've done off the back of that, which is like... Um, slightly different to what we were maybe thinking but so there's certain filters that are important but maybe there's like 10 values 10 filter options um and like three or four of them are being used and the rest of them aren't really and they're not particularly important um so we're using a show more to avoid using up too much space um after like the first three options um and then below there's kind of uh, less frequently used ones but they're they're kind of more broad um so we're showing more options on those um and then we're also kind of collapsing um, filters that aren't as important uh, just to make sure that we're highlighting the main ones and then in this case as well we're making the filters sticky as you progress down the page um, I think that's quite an interesting um, one and I've kind of got mixed views on that I think another uh, thing kind of loosely related to this is um, kind of pagination and uh, I'm a massive fan of uh, again using ASOS as an example of the load more where you essentially um, explain where you are in terms of the amount of products uh, shown compared to the total and then um, you basically like pre-load the next set of products so it's kind of it's a nicer experience than infinite scroll because you have more clarity on where you are and you can see the footer and things like that um, but yeah it's still kind of got that speed 
um, it's still like a much faster experience to like move on to the next set of products. Yeah, exactly. And I think this is one of the key insights that we can give is, is that it's just a lot of the time it's little things that just make life easier and quicker for people and, and thinking through not just the obvious stuff like, okay, we've got a list page for these filters, but what are the edge cases where it, or, or the, the less obvious things that can help people make better decisions? It's a good one is in Omnichannel, the ability to find out which products are available for collection in store. Yeah. I mean, Walmart does a really nice one, actually. They, I think if you have a saved store, it does it specifically to availability of your store, but you can um, filter by delivery and pickups on, on the, in the filters, delivery and pickups an option, and it's got two-day delivery, delivery to home, free pickup, um, pickup today, pick up and discount if you only want to see stuff that's on sale that you can so they're thinking through all those ways that different customer types think and what influences their purchase decision which i think is is smart from them yeah that's nice i like that um more simple version or like uh, kind of related to that that i think can have quite a good impact is just in stock filtering in a lot of cases um because there's still quite a lot of people that um aren't necessarily merchandising um kind of categories for availability so um yeah that's been i think that's quite a nice one to just make sure you have and it's and people seem to look for it quite a lot at the moment because it's getting a bit more popular definitely uh, and what other things have you seen work on plp so we talked about the filtering but what else, yeah. what else is going on what are you seeing that's that's trending what are more people looking at yeah so so I think um, one thing that I quite like at the moment from more of a design perspective, I guess, and like it's kind of different, it probably addresses different objectives, but uh, kind of um, feature features or promotions within uh, product grid. Um, so Everlane is a good example. Um, so they do a lot of like call outs for kind of key products. So um, if they've got kind of rows of four, they might have, uh, so if you've got four rows of four on a product grid and um, they might use kind of a two by two um, for kind of a banner or a, or a broader or a bigger kind of product card um, just so you can draw more attention to specific collections or a specific item I quite like that um, and I think uh, there's loads of other people that are doing that at the moment I think Burberry have tested it um, Skate Hut do it quite nicely but with USPs so things like free delivery any kind of promotions that are running yeah um, ASOS has done that with its premier delivery thing for yeah. a while every now and then yeah it's 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 a really smart thing to do to create visual difference like t yeah Tiffany does it Gucci the client I'm working at the moment we're looking at doing it to yeah as you said promote USPs but also um to promote because they have standardized like um pre-made products to buy but they also have like you know the ability to make your own custom make stuff so they're they're interspersing that content so that if people are browsing and not seeing something exactly that they like they're like all oh, right i can make something that's completely aligned to me as a uh, as an individual brilliant yeah yeah, yeah I, I really like that i think if it's done properly it can be really good um i think quick buy can be worth testing um so that seems to dependent on the type of retailer again that can seem to i always used to hate it um but since yeah. then i've worked with a couple of retailers where it's worked really well um particularly if you've got kind of like fashion items where you've got configuration um and you've it's kind of uh, you can speed up that journey um, particularly if you're adding multiple things to the basket as well I think it can work quite well um, wish list I guess I've I've mentioned here um, and I think if you're using wishlist on PLP I think wishlist can be quite useful and it doesn't necessarily you know it's not necessarily tied to PLP but um, the idea of putting it on there I guess like my view on it is um, 
if you do it well and you've kind of um you make it quite a clean journey where you don't have to kind of go through a lengthy account creation process and um and it's usable and kind of you you make it easy for people to add to car and you do it at the SKU level um and you can share wish list everything else is actually and it's actually like a useful function um i think wish list can add quite a lot of value for certain types of retailers um, but if you don't go down this route and you were to use like, for example, like the native Magento, um, uh, wish list functionality requires you to create an account and it's generally quite messy. Um, like I always feel like if you're not going to optimize it, there's no point in having it really. And if anything else, it could probably be worse. Um, and the only, yeah, I think, I think that's kind of one thing. Um, I think, I think on, wish it, sorry, yeah, just quickly on wishes. It always amazes me that people don't make more of it because you'd normally have a small percentage of your users doing it. I mean, I've seen sites where it's like less than 10% of people yeah. using this, but often they, they spend quite well. Because yeah, they, absolutely. They, they build up baskets and they're waiting and then the average order value can be quite high. So there can be a good commercial value. Yet so few people use like their triggered campaigns or anything with it. Like, you know, somebody comes to a site, they have an active wish list that they you know, add an item to in the last seven days, but they've not bought. And so what do they get? They get a standard newsletter sign-up overlay. Like why aren't people thinking, uh, right, why don't we do an overlay saying, hey, your, your wish list is still available or that this item in your wish list is now on sale or whatever it might be or this item in your wish list is running low on stock, don't forget. There's so many opportunities to make wish lists more proactive, um, which is for me is a, 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 a classic UX opportunity. Yeah, I also think from a marketing perspective, I think wish list and search are like massive opportunities because um, if you're using like the right kind of ESP or CRM platform, um, you can track what people are searching and you can track what people are adding to wish list. Um, and you've you literally have and also from a remarketing perspective as well, you literally know what that user is looking for. Um, and I think that can be really valuable. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, how about PDP? P's. Um, we've we've covered quite a few interesting things on on PLP. Yeah. So, what are some of the things you've seen work well on the product details page? So, I think um, size guides is quite an important one. So, again, kind of focusing a bit on fashion, or maybe not necessarily fashion, but it's more is definitely really important on fashion. I think uh, really kind of ultra usable size guides like really prominent um really good comms around different sizing for different kind of countries and things like that um ideally kind of having really good uh, imagery um and kind of generally just like loads of digestible information around how something might fit um i think that is really important and it's going to reduce your returns and it's going to hopefully increase your conversion rate um, and ultimately kind of customer satisfaction. I think that's, that's a really good one. Um, I think product recommendations are quite important. Um, so I've done quite a bit around this recently. So, uh, kind of different types. So you've got your kind of standard, um, similar items and customers also bought and complementary items. Um, and then you've got things like bundled up cells. So kind of combining items, uh, so complete the look. Um, and kind of encouraging people to buy together or dependent on the type of retailer it might be that you kind of create a set or you combine accessories etc um, that can be really good for AOV um, and also on add, so it's not necessarily PDP but upon add to car um, with a few clients recently I've implemented an overlay that basically is the uh, the equivalent of the mini basket but with a set of product recommendations um, and making sure that you're kind of factoring in the right logic and ideally kind of personalizing uh, product recs um, in those ways can be really good. Um, 
yeah and then I think um kind of beyond that like all of the standard stuff like I think imagery is really important um and kind of representing imagery in the right way um kind of having you know lifestyle imagery um like trying to pulling customer uh, imagery everything else um yeah what are some of the ones that you uh think in gents yeah imagery definitely so there's um if anyone's not using it you should get onto the baymard institute ux blog because they do loads of shopper panel research and they provide the insights free of charge uh, obviously uh, expensive reports are available on demand as well yeah uh, but yeah, I, I love that blog so they had a really good one around contextual images and find out that i think they found about um because not just the PDP, but the, the primary image you choose influences your PLP image, which can then influence consideration and click-through rate. And they found that uh, I think it's over 40% of people won't even consider a product in the list page if the primary image isn't, uh, isn't given contextual information. So there's some really nice little nuggets around image stuff. So definitely, yeah, well worth them out. Other things for me, shipping and returns. So a project I'm on at the moment, we, came, we had a really beautiful PDP design and really looked visually nice. And then all of a sudden I looked and went, there's no shipping and returns info on here. Yeah. It's obviously an absolute no brainer for e-commerce. So it's amazing how even um, when you've got those experience, you can just suddenly miss something as you get caught up in the beauty of the overall user experience. Of the page. So make sure it's obvious to people how they get it and what happens if they need to return it. Uh, even things like uh, we put in a lovely pattern that when it's on jewelry, so if somebody selects their size, when they do that, they then get a um, nice message that then appears saying order within the next X hours for guaranteed next day delivery. It's, so nice little touches to bring the page to life rather than just flat text. Um, pulling out review copies. You talked about product recommendations. I'm looking at recommendations from the customer UGC level. So star ratings and reviews are standard, right? They exist on so many sites. But few sites do it where they actually put a put the review copy visible so you can actually up high on a page see the testimonial from a customer rather than having to scroll, click down into a reviews tab and then read them so uh, booking.com do it really nicely as overlays on their images and they, they test like crap on that site but not like crap so they test like crazy it's probably <laughs> so they, they test incredibly well i don't want to give the wrong impression there um so yeah, sometimes it's taking what you've got and reusing it in a different way. Yeah. Um, UGC, and I, I, I've used this in my training courses for e-consultancy about user-generated content can amplify the impact of visual assets on a page because it's customers saying, hey, look, we like it. So it's social proof, it's persuasion. And then people throw it back and go, yeah, but that's great for fashion stuff, but you know, it won't work on my products. Be surprised what does work. So, Joseph yeah. Joseph, um, the like uh, a kitchenware and bathroomware um, company. Uh, so Mike Warwick used to to work there. He's a very smart, data driven guy. He did some uh, was doing stress on it and was trying to build out longer landing pages for their high end recycling bin, which I think was about two hundred and fifty pounds. They found that user generated content actually worked well on that page. So people were willing to upload pictures of their bins in their kitchens. So you'll be surprised what customers will do. Um, and then I guess two other small things. So one is subtle transitions. It's when people scroll, bring the page to life. Yeah. Make, when you, when the people are hovering over images, make them expand out or, you know, make when people are zooming, make it so it's not just like that image just appears. Like maybe it's that image expands out into the zoom view. So anything to make it more interactive feeling. And then the last one for me is not just doing the same old, same old. So a good example for me is and it, I guess this is probably going to become same old eventually, 
some in the fashion space like Nike did nicely on their PDP where instead of the images in a block where you carousel scroll across um, the images stack down vertically and they tell the story of the product as you scroll down the page and read the copy and then they've got autoplay videos coming in as you're doing that so just some different ways of making people get into the storytelling yeah, I think, um, yeah, really good points there. Um, just to add to a few of them. So I think um, some real, like that shipping point you made, really good one. I think um, something that we've just started trialing for client is um, estimated shipping, um, which I think is pretty good, particularly when you're kind of highlighting it more, um, when you can ship something quickly. Um, so I think that kind of adds um, a little bit of kind of, not necessarily urgency. What's the word? Not urgency. I've heard you say it before. Um, well, the, the uh, persuasion stuff. Yeah, that kind of stuff. So, yeah, where you're basically like just promoting when a certain product is available really, like, and can be shipped same day, for example. Um, yeah, like, yeah. Uh, yeah, it is an urgency, though. I mean, that, that whole like, yeah, cut-off it dates, it's an urgency. And a um, couple of sites have tested where instead of just the message, they put a countdown time and found that that's had a yeah, bigger absolutely, impact. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I think um, the delivery one is a really nice one there because you can do it often just off the back of um, like your shipping matrix. And I think it's actually surprisingly easy to do. You don't, like We've done it recently with Nava, but I think you can do it yourself and create your own logic. And I think that's quite a nice one. Um, I think uh, some you mentioned, or I saw you've added a note on Nike, and I think uh, they were one of the first ones to add the gifts for the of the model with like um, sportswear, which I thought, which I think could work really nicely. And again, yeah. kind of more on the fashion side, but um, again, I really like stuff like that. And um, and you were kind of talking about creating that more kind of premium considered experience, and I think that as well as things like interactions and load states and everything else, um, hard to quantify, but I just yeah, I think kind of that. Is is really important i completely agree on that um on the review side so again i love product reviews so i used to do a lot more seo stuff um and from like for a lot of particularly like multi-brand retailers where you've got like manufacturer copy and everything else adds loads of value from an seo perspective um, but one of the things that i think that a lot of people are doing at the moment that i really like is um categorizing reviews so allowing you to filter by for example like fit delivery like specific characteristics uh, i think that's really nice and also kind of profiling different users so being able to like either filter or just see that a review is by like essentially like a similar person or like a similar range range or location or whatever else um i think that's really nice Mm. um there was one other thing that you said that prompted like made me think something but i can't remember what it was um but yeah i've been waffling on so much <laughs> No, I think there's some really good ones there. Um, oh yeah, the only other one I was going to add. So, um, so on more, this is more of a conversation that our paid team have. Or they don't necessarily have it. I force them to have it. But um, so with Google Shopping, um, a lot of people land on PDPs, and often that's kind of the first touch point um, for that customer with your brand or like the product. And I guess like thinking more around, um, kind of selling you as a retailer and always a brand and having more like story based copy or brand based copy. So like, uh, kind of exposing more like brand blocks beyond, uh, kind of within the PDP, I think can be really good. Yeah. Um, and then also another thing we've tested recently was, um, uh, so through Google Shopping, so if someone's come through Google Shopping, promoting uh, price match and things like that, or like just change it if you can. So either using like customer segmentation within the platform. Uh, in fact, you probably wouldn't. Most platforms wouldn't 
allowed to do that. You'd need to use like a personalization provider. Um, but just um, basically showing different content based on uh, Google Shopping being the journey. So you could emphasize price more, price match, um, specific promotions, like delivery messaging, you being like an authorized reseller, whatever. Um, but thinking more about around kind of the, that average user is probably going to be viewing different PDPs across different retailers. Yes. Yeah, that point you said about Google Shopping, and, and this is another like good UX consideration. I, I saw a really nice example from um, Dunelm, where for Google Shopping ads, where it was not a specific product query, but it was more generic, but they clicked through on a product. So maybe it was like floral bedding sheets. Yeah. Instead of dropping them into the specific product page that they clicked on, they dropped them into the product list page for that um, relative match. So like floral bed, so bedding sheets already filtered to floral. But at the top, they had the quick view, quick buy panel for that specific product the user had clicked on. So they could see the snippet, they could select the variant, add to basket, or go to view more details if they wanted. And the thinking behind that was, well, actually, they might that might not be the exact product they want. They might think, oh, actually, I want a, I want a blue colour, not a green. And then they've got the list page of filters below to, to give them um, uh, more choice so there's no dead end, which I thought was really smart thing. Yeah, yeah no, that, that so was cool. Lots of lots of little things. Um, and I think we've covered some really interesting stuff. Well, hopefully, anyway, I'm biased thinking that we're interested. Maybe we're not. Maybe people have fallen asleep. Who knows? Um, but if you have fallen asleep, it's time to wake up because uh, we're going to draw to an end. So there's there's a couple of other topics we discussed about. Um, uh, we we talked about how, uh, you know covering today. That what we'll do is we'll cover those in future episodes because they are pretty chunky in yeah. their own right. So one of them is basket and checkout user experience and best practice. Um, critical for nailing down in a replatform and the other one links into to ux and seo we're going to we're going to do an episode around seo we look at the the ux and and how you get balanced decisions because obviously sometimes the ultimately what for seo might not align from a ux point of view so we'll cover those in separate episodes so it feels like we've we've covered quite a bit today paul yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's a good episode. Like some really good points. Um, yeah, really nice topic. I think it's one of the definitely one of the funner parts of doing um, a replatforming project. Yes, definitely. Uh, excellent. So thanks as always, everyone, for listening. Any questions, you know how to get hold of us on social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, or through replatform.fm. And if you do like it, please do tell other people about it. We're always uh, delighted when people share the good news. Um, and have a lovely day. Speak to you soon.